Welcome to episode 87 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Joanna Lindner-Pradella. Joanna is the Director of Knowledge Translation at the International Women's Development Agency, the IWDA, overseeing research, policy, advocacy and movement strengthening work, as well as IWDA's flagship program to redefine how poverty is measured, Equality Insights. The IWDA is the leading Australian NGO focused on women's rights and gender equality in Asia-Pacific. In this episode, Joanna and I discuss feminist foreign policy, why it's yet to be implemented in Australia, and what an Australian feminist foreign policy might look like. We also discuss the IWDA's individual deprivation measure as an innovative, gender-sensitive poverty measure. We've included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog on feminist foreign policy and gender equality in Asia-Pacific. The Development Policy Centre is running its annual fundraising appeal. The centre provides critical support to this podcast and, of course, runs the Dev Policy blog and undertakes important research around aid and development. If you appreciate this podcast and the Dev Policy blog, please make a tax-deductible donation at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Enjoy the episode. Joanna, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me. You wrote an article for the Dev Policy blog a little while ago on how traditional international relations don't work for women. So what is a feminist foreign policy approach and how does it differ to traditional foreign policy? I think it's helpful before talking about a feminist foreign policy if we just uh, stop and refresh ourselves remembering what it, what is foreign policy full stop. Um, often we think of it as diplomacy and what diplomats do when they, they're abroad, um, but I think it's important to expand that consideration um, to the ways that a nation interacts with with other nations abroad. So we we think about development assistance when we expand it that way. We think about defense or trade. If we're thinking really expansively and of the moment, we might think about the way in which Australia runs its health security policy, which has an international effect. We might think about how we run environment and climate policy also having an international effect. So those are some of the, um, the many arenas, I suppose, of foreign policy. But actually the most helpful definition of foreign policy I've seen asks us to stop and remember that before we talk about how we implement these means of implementation or the domains of implementation, that foreign policy is ultimately about the goals that we seek to attain abroad and really importantly about the values that underpin those goals. And I think that's where feminist foreign policy is really born. It's at that goal level and at that value level. Um, so long before you get to how you run your development assistance or your, your diplomacy, it's really about what you prioritize, what are your national values. And since 2014, five countries have adopted a feminist foreign policy. And it's not one settled thing. It is still an evolving idea. Um, but across the board, it has some core attributes. And the most important of the core attributes is that a feminist foreign policy embeds gender equality as the central goal of its foreign policy, and that that decision is underpinned by the, the value that states place on equality. So 
that by recognizing uh, the value of equality as a national attribute that a state wants to proclaim through its relationships abroad, um, it also recognizes that the implementation of foreign policy can have different effects on men and women, so what we call gendered impacts of foreign policy, and that those gendered impacts can either perpetuate the status quo, which is gender inequality currently, or they can um, upend that, that inequality and they can take a different track. And so a feminist foreign policy is very careful about analyzing those gendered impacts to ensure that the decisions that a state takes really understand the differential ways it may impact on men and women. So I think there's a definition out there that I particularly like, that feminist foreign policy is a political framework centered around the well-being of marginalized people that invokes processes of self-reflection regarding foreign policies, hierarchical global systems. And I think that really nicely encapsulates what a feminist foreign policy is all about. And so how does it differ from traditional, uh, traditional foreign policy? Uh, a traditional foreign policy is framed really around the security of the nation state and the security of the state. And the feminist foreign policy approach really emphasizes that national security can't be divorced from human security and that the flourishing of individuals within societies is the foundation for, for flourishing between between societies. So I think, it's, I think it's really important to remember that it is an evolving area of practice. And ideally, feminist foreign policy commitments will be co-created with feminist movements and feminist organizations as they work with governments to define it, to develop principles and criteria, and to put in place accountability mechanisms so that it's easier to know, not just when a state has declared that they have one, um, but when they're really hitting their stride and in implementing it. We'll come back in a moment to the countries that have actually adopted a feminist foreign policy. But as you were speaking there, I was thinking about how feminist foreign policy makes sense in principle. But what about all of the other things that could guide foreign policy, like the environment, human rights, children? There are a number of other values that could guide foreign policy. So why feminism? Yeah, I think uh, oftentimes people hear feminism and they think that we're just talking about women's rights. So I do think it's helpful to go back to that definition. And it's why I particularly like it around talking about um, the centrality of marginalized people's view. So um, feminist foreign policy isn't about singling out women's rights. It is a political framework that requires deep analysis of the ways in which structures of inequality and marginalization act on different people. So um, to throw, I guess, a bunch of jargon at, at you, it's about unpacking how that cis-hetero patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, militarism, neoliberalism, capitalism, all the isms, how they interact to drive that marginalization and for whom, and to really deeply interrogate whether or not the power the process um, and powers that be are really working for people or not. So it's an approach that's seeking transformation at multiple levels. Um, and I guess at the individual level, it's definitely seeking to normalize the equality of people of different genders. But at the structural level, it is that, that power, um, ex uh, power analysis, looking at laws, practices, and norms that either uphold 
or oppose the status quo in regards to how power is exercised in the global arena. And, you know, almost all countries have signed up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and they've committed themselves to upholding and protecting the rights of all people, including diverse women and girls and non-binary people. Um, but in almost all countries, these groups continue to be disadvantaged compared to men, and they have worse health outcomes, economic and social outcomes. We know that women are underrepresented in political leadership in every country around the world. So arguably a rights-based approach, for example, is necessary, but it's insufficient for addressing the kind of systemic marginalization and inequalities that are persisting today. So a feminist foreign policy approach really explicitly wants to tackle that gender inequality, but to do so in ways that will benefit all people, really getting to the heart of the rights-based approach, but also getting underneath it and asking the questions about why. Why haven't we achieved the rights agenda yet? What are the barriers to achieving it? Um, and how might we think differently about foreign policy as a way to achieve those goals? There's um, maybe an example of contemporary note. Um, you know, the prime minister last week stood up and announced $270 billion of defense spending. Um, and I think that this is a really perfect example of how feminist foreign policy might have asked different questions and therefore might have come up with um, some different solutions to the kinds of challenges that the prime minister was uh, talking about and thinking about in making, making that expenditure. So I think if we think about the source of our insecurities in this region, if we think about the interests of the majority of states and people in this region, um, and if we think about our existing power to influence those things, it's possible that we might have put some of that money or all of that money into climate change prevention or and mitigation and adaption. And I think you can just imagine that that would change our operating context in different ways than defense expenditure would, but it would change our operating context nonetheless. Um, and if that defense expenditure is really about posturing or signaling um, our intent and signaling our values, then imagine the signal we could have sent both to allies and those who might seek to undermine us. Um, and really importantly, imagine the signal that that would have sent to the people who are most vulnerable to the threat of climate change. Um, I think it would have been quite a different kind of announcement. I think there's a real economic question to be asked here, though. Of course, centralising the experiences of marginalised people is, again, in principle, the right thing to do. But I question the economic repercussions of that. If our foreign policy inhibited us from trading with countries that didn't share some of our values, for instance, has there been much research on the possible economic impacts of a feminist foreign policy? So I think this is the distinction between, you know, the ideal and the real. So it is, um, it, it is still an emerging area of practice. And even though five countries have um, adopted them, really only Sweden has had one for any great length of time. Canada announced a feminist uh, international development policy in 2017. But otherwise, when we talk about France, Canada, Luxembourg, and Mexico, they've all really announced in the last six to 12 months. So it, it is really quite new. And uh, there aren't necessarily accountability mechanisms and measurement frameworks for um, for evaluating how countries have gone about implementing them. So um, 
given the notion that feminist foreign policy needs to work for people, we, we at IWDA, um, along with some partners, thought it might be best to ask people, women in particular, who are often on the receiving end of feminist foreign policy, what genuine implementation might look like. And they identified eight principles, um, one of which was accountability. And within that principle of accountability, they named uh, this idea of what they call transparent misalignment. So this is an acknowledgement that the real world is messy um, and that we we create frameworks and approaches for how we go about doing things. But sometimes we need to make exceptions or consider different actions through some different lenses. So there may not be a one size fits all. So the principle of transparent misalignment essentially says if you're going to have a feminist foreign policy and you're going to act in ways that are inconsistent with a feminist foreign policy, say so and justify it. Make a decision that you think is justifiable and that you're happy to stand up and put your name to and then make it. So, you know, I think those economic considerations could be managed through that principle of transparent misalignment where there's an incredibly pressing economic need to do something outside of a feminist framework, then the means would exist to do that and to do so sort of with the understanding of people in the feminist foreign policy community and I think in the, the broader community as well if the argument is well justified. But also to your point, we've just announced $270 billion for defense expenditure. So, um, you know, often when ideas are new or they challenge the status quo, people do default to questions like, yes, but is it affordable? Could we really could we really afford to do it? And I think as, as I was trying to unpack in that example, that same amount of money could have gone into a different signaling or posturing uh, experience, which would have been the addressing of climate change and had different security outcomes, but nonetheless, it would have had quite significant security outcomes. You would have really been building um, building the regional security and embedding Australia as a values aligned partner and really a partner of choice in this region, which is, you know, something that we very much want to do to be able to ensure our position. I like the phrase transparent misalignment. I'm going to use that this week. As you said there, Sweden is the only country that has been doing feminist foreign policy for long enough to study the consequences of it. Have there been any successes or shortfalls or other lessons learned from Sweden? I think this is really an emerging area of practice. Um, it's you know, it would make for an excellent research agenda to really look at this. Um, and if there's anyone out there who's doing it or who's really interested, please get in touch with us at IWDA. We're really keen to collaborate um, with others in this field. Um, so I, I think the answer is uh, no, that there isn't a huge amount of research looking at um, the ways in which the implementation has had a real world impact, what's been different, um, where has it fallen short. But again, coming back to these principles, I think that we worked with um, stakeholders to identify. Obviously, accountability um, was you know, a standout. It was really around making sure that resources, planning, and reporting um, are, are commensurate with the goal of a feminist foreign policy and that they're public and that they are co-created. So these are all principles that people want to see in place. And to some extent, the Swedish framework, which is focused on um, resourcing rights and representation, really does uh, stand as, I guess, the totem pole, the, the 
the top example of how um, how that could work. Um, but the other principles that were identified through our research was um, the rights-based approach. So uh, recognizing that that is an, a necessary but insufficient condition, but still important that the state is taking a rights-based approach. And really importantly in the research, the, the women that we spoke to wanted a rights-based approach to go as far as um, how you justify your aid or foreign policy, so not to justify it um, as national interest or self-interest, but to justify it through the upholding of rights. So it's a really comprehensive way of expressing the rights-based approach. They wanted a feminist foreign policy to reinforce the role of the state as the ultimate duty bearer, so quite wary of um, states sort of offsetting their responsibilities by deferring to market-based solutions or the private sector, um, but really wanting a feminist foreign policy that upholds um, state responsibilities and particularly state responsibilities in the arena of protecting, defending, advancing human rights. It was really around the transformation of the status quo and at the levels of systems and norms. There was a principle that got named inclusive, intersectional and power disrupting. And I think quite lively discussion about power disrupting. Um, and so, you know, that's the, the idea of um, accepting accepting that you're doing something different, accepting that people will have questions, um, and really trying to transform the understanding. So um, I don't know if it's a phrase that means anything to this audience, but that that norm entrepreneuring space. So really trying to change what we think of as the acceptable ways of acting. Um, and then the most controversial of the principles, even in the room of people that we were talking to, um, was the promotion of nonviolence and demilitarization demilitarization. So that's an area where we would expect to see uh, those who have declared a feminist foreign policy uh, probably find it difficult um, because that is outside, so far outside the traditional status quo that I would think that that would be a journey for countries to really get to that place. Um, and then the last principle was self-scrutiny and reflection. And I do think for the countries that have declared feminist foreign policies, you do see, and particularly in Sweden um, and France and Canada, you see these um, approaches to recognizing uh, where they're falling short and being willing to be held to account. Um, and that cooperation with or co-creation co with feminist movements and feminist organizations. You know, so Canada created the W7 as a side mechanism to the G7 to have that agenda informed by gender advocates um, all throughout. So that's a really important way of co-creating what it means to have a feminist foreign policy. If I remember correctly, Margot Wallström was the Swedish foreign minister that introduced feminist foreign policy to Sweden. And back in 2014, she talked openly about Russia being one of the catalysts for Sweden introducing the new policy approach in response to a very masculine, egocentric style of leadership and its impacts on foreign policy in Russia. And so that brings me to Australia. What steps would we need to take to have feminist foreign policy here? Um, well, maybe I'll start with a contradiction um, that hopefully I can unpack in my answer. So the contradiction would be that it matters more what you do in practice than what you call something, um, but also what you call something matters quite a lot. 
So that's that's our contradiction. Um, so to to that first part of the contradiction and your question, I think the good news for Australia or for those advocating for a feminist foreign policy for Australia is that we aren't at the starting line. Um, we're we're some way down the track. We already have good practice in place um, that would that would be considered aligned to um, what is required for a feminist foreign policy. So as I said, it is still an emerging area of study. And in fact, IWDA has just launched a new research project um, that's going to build on our expertise in this area and chart the trajectories that different countries have taken uh, to adapt feminist foreign policies. Um, so that's a work in progress and we look forward to coming back and talking about it when um, when it's completed. But we know already that there are some factors that are generally considered supportive for the adoption of a feminist foreign policy. Um, and they're, they, they sort of range all over from um, high proportion of women and feminists in positions of political leadership. Um, and I really do want to emphasize not just women, but feminists in political leadership. Um, and None of the five countries currently with a feminist foreign policy, for example, are headed by women at the moment. Um, and you have, you know, some of these charismatic leaders like um, Macron, like Justin Trudeau, who've really um, backed, backed themselves as feminist leaders. And that's, you know, that's quite important. So um, it's not just women in those positions of power. Um, national identities that pride themselves on being uh, pro-women or pro-gender equality and also identities that pride themselves on being a good state or a, um, you know, a state that follows or supports the rules-based order. And I think those are things you definitely hear in the Australian context quite a lot. Other supportive factors are pro-gender equality domestic policies. Um, strong commitments to addressing gender equality in existing foreign policy domains, a commitment to the women, peace and security agenda. And the most important factor is actually a tradition of strong activism amongst local women's rights organizations. Um, so in addition to those factors, all of which Australia could really tick tick, tick, tick the boxes on. Australia has a track record um, as being a world leader in integrating a strong focus on gender equality within our international development cooperation program. Um, so we really, we're seven tenths of the way there, I would say. Um, so despite the fact that we don't use the term feminist foreign policy, those enabling factors really um, give us the, the foundations for a strong jumping off point to explore what it would mean, what more we would need to do, um, and why, why don't we just use the term? And I think that comes to that second part of the, the contradiction, which is that, um, you know, if actions speak louder than words, do words matter? And I'd say the answer is, is definitely yes. And I guess coming back to that idea of um, norm entrepreneuring and really trying to change the discourse and to um, to change people's calculus of what is legitimate and what is um, acceptable and desirable, then it is really important uh, to tell people what what you believe, what your values are, and to sort of put the line in the sand and stand behind it or stand on it. Um, and especially in diplomacy, words are really powerful signifiers. So I think um, telling the world in no uncertain terms that we stand firm on gender equality is a power unto itself. And it's an opportunity that we shouldn't pass up. So I think that's where Australia could focus its efforts next. 
I think in Australia, our national discussion is very focused on national security. Is feminist foreign policy always aligned with national security or can one ever be incongruent with the other? I think it's just a different conception of national security. So traditional foreign policy really doesn't interrogate under the level of the state. It's, you know, state security is its focus, whereas feminist foreign policy is just noting that states are nothing but a collection of individuals for whom um, national security means very little if their individual security remains consistently at risk. So you have countries that are putting this in place because they recognize that in an increasingly polarized or unstable world, that it's really important to acknowledge that there are so many threats that we face that can't be solved with a national only or a national first approach. Um, You know, we're living through one of them right now, pandemic viruses don't discriminate on the basis of your military might or your national borders. And so having secured both of those things doesn't really stop anyone inside your state from experiencing um, really significant threats to security. Climate change obviously is another one. And it's, um, you know, we, uh, 2020 has been a long, a long year. We forget that right before you know, the lockdown of coronavirus, we were we were dealing with bushfires and, you know, at least here in the ACT, we were dealing with the worst air quality in the world for a number of days um, and weeks as bushfire smoke um, affected this area. And of course, all the people, you know, living in bushfire affected communities experiencing horror. Um, so I think we know that the threats that we face um, have really, really changed and, um, A national security agenda alone isn't going to be enough to address these issues. Research also is telling us that the best indicator of conflict, um, if you want to pivot to that sort of realm of more traditional threats, is not the degree of democracy or the religious identity or the socio-cultural indicators of a state, but the best indicator of conflict um, is the way that a country treats its women. So states that have higher levels of gender equality have lower likelihoods of inter and intrastate violence. They have lower levels of perceived and actual corruption, and they have a higher trust in government. So I think when you look at the the world around us and the turbulence and the instability of the current moment, it's really crying out for change and for thinking differently about how did we get to this moment? And really importantly, how do we want to get out of it? Um, you know, in humanitarian um, response, they have the term build back better. And I think this is really an opportunity from a foreign policy perspective to think about um, if coronavirus, if if climate change, if these are going to become critical junctures or tipping points at which we have an opportunity to quite radically rethink how we want to be in the world and how we want to address the challenges we face, then, you know, then this is our moment to to do that. And I think um, we would be silly not to seize this opportunity. A statistic I always find amazing is that of the 33 Australian white papers, reviews and other major foreign and security documents produced in the last 50 years, not one has ever been led by a woman. Why does that matter? Yeah, I'm taking a big breath. Sigh. Yes, it does. It matters a lot. Um, So 
certainly you're right about the history. I would note that Francis Adamson uh, was at the helm of DFAT and Julie Bishop, the foreign minister, when Australia's last foreign policy white paper was developed, but they weren't the, the head of the task force. So um, while it's, it certainly doesn't erase that history, it is worth noting the very small amounts of progress that have been made. Um, but, I, you know, I assume it isn't controversial to point out that foreign policy affects men and women and non-binary people differently and that when we develop it we should have some reference to to those perspectives to the needs of of these people um and that means having them at the table and you know equally represented having an opportunity for their lived experience um and their concerns to be brought into that policy making process um you know it's not an example from foreign policy, but I think the lack of diversity in decision making was so almost laughably on show when uh, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the prime minister announced that um, a 30 minute rule for hairdressers. Um, and it was only after, you know, thousands of women immediately pointed out that women's hair takes longer than 30 minutes to dye and often to cut. Um, and that that was just ludicrous from the perspective of how people actually use a hairdresser, that the decision had to be walked back. So, you know, it's a bit frivolous of an example, but I think it's just such an obvious one where the lack of diversity and the lack of being able to pipe up and say, you know, that doesn't accord with the lived experience of half of this population. So before we go out and say that, maybe let's think about it. Um, and I think, you know, without a diversity of experience being brought to bear, we miss out on the best thinking um, that can emerge and particularly emerge when you have smart people sorting through different perspectives. Um, so, you know, as you pointed out, the last 50 years, we've been missing that equal representation at the highest levels of these decision-making processes. Um, so that means that we really, to correct for that, we need more than a handful of high-powered women at the top or a single woman leading a task force. We really need to get to gender parity at all levels to improve the quality of debate inside the policy-making process um, and to improve the quality of decision-making at the top. I had that exact conversation with my hairdresser a few weeks back where we said, was there not one woman in the room when that 30-minute rule was made? It's a worrying thought. So moving on to our aid program, you've said in the past that the strongest form of soft power that we have is our aid program. Are we using it to its full potential? No, I can't say that strongly enough. No, 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 we are not. You know, the government has made repeated cuts to the aid budget over the past seven years, and sometimes these cuts have been direct, um, and sometimes they've been more a bit by stealth. And I think that's actually something that we're seeing and are concerned about right now. So the government's put out a new um, interim policy for responding um, to and preventing COVID-19, which is really important. Um, but what they haven't done is put any additional budget in for that work, which means that by design, the approach Australia is taking to responding and preventing COVID in our um, international development cooperation and with partners is necessarily going to come at the expense of other existing long-term programs that are also doing incredibly important work and doing the work of building resilience to the kind of shocks. You know, um, there's sort of the phrase that's out there that poverty is a comorbidity for, for COVID. You know, poverty increases your exposure to the disease. It increases the likelihood of catching it, and it decreases your ability to um, act quickly to receive health care and 
you know, hopefully to recover from it. So it's, it's short-sighted to undermine the way in which we provide long-term development assistance to respond to a humanitarian crisis. And really famously, you know, in the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, um, Prime Minister Howard put in an additional billion dollars to the aid program, recognizing that the kind of um, rebuilding and um, post-disaster post support that was required was so significant that it needed its own additional funding so that we could continue to progress with our development program while also doing this um, important rebuilding work um, following the tsunami. So I think that's an excellent example of how we might think about the current moment and a way in which we could ensure that responding to COVID doesn't come at the expense of responding to other things. I think as well, you know, we do see this increasing trend of aid being linked more and more explicitly to Australia's national interest. And that it just never fails to surprise me. I've worked in development for over 15 years. And it, it just it blows my mind every time that people uh, people think that this linking to to national interest is somehow doing us a favor. So, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to think of a way of um, an analogy, but you wouldn't tell a friend who's asked to borrow your car that you're lending it to her because you hope she's going to pay for your groceries next month when you anticipate having some cash flow problems. You just let her borrow your car, knowing that by doing what you can to help her in her moment of need, you increase the likelihood of doing her doing what she can for you when when you have a moment of need. And I think it's that same principle with aid in the national interest. If we tell everyone we're doing it for ourselves, it undermines the extent to which it will ultimately service our interest, um, because it doesn't build the the desired goodwill of actually just providing assistance to meet the legitimate needs of our partner countries. So I think um, as a starting point for uh, reaping the benefit of the soft power that aid can, um, can accrue for us, it, it would be around framing our development cooperation on shared interests and common challenges. And that would help us both meet the needs of partner countries and accrue that soft power benefit. And, you know, of course, doing that also requires having the money to do it. So it's that two pronged. We need that additional funding and we need to stop. Um, we need to stop saying we're doing this um, and we need to actually stop doing it because it's just in our interest. We need to understand that our interests are really intimately linked to the interests of our partner countries. Okay, to finish, you're the Director of the Individual Deprivation Measure at the IWDA. The IDM is a gender-sensitive poverty measure. Can you talk about what it seeks to measure and why gender-sensitive measures are important? So I think what it seeks to measure is really exciting, um, but also it's really important to talk about um, why it measures those things and how it does, does them. So, um, you know, it's I don't know what day it is. It's the 14th of July, 2020. And the world collects poverty data in a way that makes it impossible to say whether men are poorer than women overall or vice versa. Um, I mean, there's almost an accepted wisdom that poverty has been feminizing over the last period. But the truth is that the data can't show that. Um, and it can't show it for three really fundamental reasons. So the first reason is that the world measures the poverty of households rather than the poverty of individuals. So we gather data from, from a single individual in the house. It's usually the head of the house. That usually is the man. Uh, and then we assume that that person is a reasonable proxy for everyone else in the house. And 
everyone knows that this is a flawed assumption, and yet we carry on doing it. The second, um, the second limitation to current poverty measures is that we can conflate poverty with financial circumstances alone. So while money is really important, it's not the only marker of poverty, and there are many forms of deprivation that can't be addressed with money alone. Um, and where we do consider additional aspects of poverty, it's often limited to things like health or education. Um, and again, those are extremely important, but they're not the only things that matter. And particularly for women's experience of poverty, we have questions of time use or the ability to influence decision making inside your house or in your community, family planning. These are all key aspects of deprivation for women that really don't get measured. Um, and the third limitation to the current poverty measurement approaches are that when we do collect or analyze data from individuals or on multiple dimensions of poverty, we haven't gathered all of that data from the same individual. And so we can't paint an intersectional picture to really understand how social group characteristics uh, might influence the experience of poverty. So asking questions like, what's the experience of rural women aged 18 to 25 compared to their urban counterparts is not really very answerable in data the way that most um, poverty measures collect data. So the IDM was really developed to overcome these limitations and we do that in three main ways. So we collect data from every individual residing in the house, which means that we, we see that unique experience of each household member rather than making that significantly flawed assumption um, about their circumstances based on asking only one, one person. Um, the second is that we collect data from 15 dimensions of life. Um, the survey was developed with a significant component of participatory research, and it engaged more than 3,000 individuals in six countries around the world who had lived experience of poverty, and it asked them to identify the areas of life that they said mattered most. And that's really what informed the 15 dimensions of um, what the IDM measures. And, and lastly, we overcome those um, standing limitations because we collect each, we, we collect the data from each individual on all the dimensions. So we are able to paint that intersectional picture and we can use the data to show decision makers with more accuracy, what are the issues for whom and where. So the, um, the actual dimensions that we measure are food, water, shelter, health, education, energy, sanitation, relationships, clothing, violence, family planning, environment, voice, time use, and work. So it's really, really comprehensive. And ultimately what we know is that by making the circumstances of all people visible in the data, we have the greatest chance of uh, meeting our commitments to the 2030 agenda. So the first sustainable development goal is to end poverty in all its forms everywhere. And underpinning that agenda is this principle of leaving no one behind, uh, which is what the IDM data is designed to be able to do. So what's next for the IDM? Yeah, uh, so uh, as people may know, the work of um, the IDM has been ongoing for the last 12 years and IWDA and ANU have worked together along with a range of other partners at different phases of the work to ready, ready the measure for for global use. And I'm extremely proud of the work that we've we've done together in this time period. Um, for IWDA now, the goal is really to build a trajectory towards use at scale. Um, and for us, that means integrating the IDM into our own work and practice so that we can really leverage um, our own organizational strengths and mandates and stakeholders and networks. And the ANU is doing similarly. So to help distinguish between our 
new complementary areas of focus. We're each taking the work forward under new banners. So IWDA has established um, Equality Insights as a flagship program to carry forward our work on gender sensitive poverty measurement. And we're going to be doing that with our core constituencies. So women's rights organizations, activists, um, movements, and feminist data producers and advocates um, and trying to put the data in their hands. Um, we know that, you know, as I said before, development dollars are really under pressure and it's never been more important for decision makers to have access to more sophisticated data for better targeting their resources and attention um, and making that greater impact on poverty. So yes, we want to work with people who are ready to um, innovate, to try try new things, do things differently. Um, we want to be out there doing more data collection. We'll continue to work with stakeholders in Fiji and the Solomon Islands, um, where we've led data collections in the recent past um, to get that data in use, supporting uh, those governments and those women's rights organizations to um, you know, promote uh, approaches that will help overcome the barriers that uh, particular particularly women are facing in, in the poverty eradication journey. Excellent. We'll stop there. Thanks for your time. That was episode 87 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre with Joanna Lintner-Pradella. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week. <laughs>